How do you handle fear when a spinal surgery goes bad or when your plane crash lands on a mysterious island like in that episode of Lost? How do you deal with the anxiety, with the terror? Do you fight fear? Do you let it in? Do you do deep breathing? Count to five. How do you handle fear? Life is dangerous. Fear is part of life. Living well requires us to be able to cope with fear. Fear is also part of faith. And God gives us many difficult and dangerous things to do as we follow him. And if left unchecked, fear can really keep us from enjoying the best of what God has in store for us. So as human beings and as Christians, how do we cope with fear? According to the prophet Isaiah, the way to deal with fear is to trust. Trusting God is the opposite of fear. As the prophet writes in chapter 12, Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. I bring up fear and trust this morning because they play very prominent roles in the book of Isaiah. We're studying the book of the Old Testament book of Isaiah here at Rooftop in an extended study that we're calling Isaiah for today. And we've broken Isaiah, the book, up in different themes Uh, One of the themes of the book is how God wants to rebuild his relationship with his people. Uh, The nation of Judah, God's people, they've been destroyed, their city has been destroyed, they've been exiled to the land of Babylon, but God didn't just leave them there, God rescued them, God brought them back to Jerusalem to rebuild their city, rebuild their, their temple, rebuild their nation, but things have to be different now. After centuries of sin and paganism and idolatry and immorality, things have to be different. And the book of Isaiah is filled with instructions on how to be different, how to be restored to God. So we're calling this series The Way Back because it describes the steps Judah needs to take to be restored to God, what God gives them to do on the way back. Last week, Jeremy looked at the first step on the way back, which is to lament and grieve our sin. The second step on the way back is to trust and not fear. As God wants to rebuild his nation, the people are going to need to trust him and not fear what he has given them to do. Both of these ideas, trusting and not fearing, are very present in the book of Isaiah. And what I want to do with you this morning is look at each one individually, trust and not fearing. And then, hopefully, tie them together at the end. Let's start with trust. Isaiah is replete with commands to trust God. The prophet writes in chapter 26, for example, You, Lord, will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast, because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal And as he writes in chapter 50, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. So the emphasis in these verses is that God is worthy of Judah's trust. He will do what he has said he will do. Even if the people of Judah don't understand God's plan, even if they're like walking around blind, as the prophet writes, unable to see, they need to be able to trust that God will take them where he needs them to go. It is this trust that gives them their strength and their peace, in fact. In quietness and trust is your strength, the prophet writes. Not only are the people of God to trust in him, but they are to not trust in things that are not him. 
Throughout Isaiah, God commands them to not put their trust in powers not capable of saving them. Do not trust in Egypt, he writes. Do not trust in idols, he says. Stop trusting in mere humans. They have but a breath in their nostrils. When it comes to facing the dangers and uncertainty of life, you know as well as I do that we put our trust in things that can do nothing for us. We, we trust in politicians. We trust in money. We trust in stimulus checks. We trust in our doctors. We trust in health. And that's not all terrible, but it only goes so far. Only God is ultimately trustworthy in the ways that really matter. Only God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Only God rescued the people of Judah from captivity in uh, Babylon. Only God raised Jesus from the dead, and only God can raise us. Only God is trustworthy. Unfortunately, trust is difficult. We can be suspicious distrustful people. Uh, we've been burned too many times. Our parents, our best friends even, have been re- unreliable. Uh, the government isn't reliable. I know, I know a lot of you, for example, are suspicious about vaccines and masks because you don't think the government is reliable, should be trusted. And even God himself can be hard to trust. I mean, sometimes we don't always get what we want from God, and we make the mistaken conclusion that God must not be trustworthy. It's easier just to not trust and to give in to the fear. But without trust, we cannot follow Jesus. God is always inviting his people to do difficult but exciting things, and that's the journey of faith. God is like Aladdin, who is constantly asking us from the other side of the balcony railing, reaching out his hand and asking us, like Jasmine, Do you trust me? And we have the option of saying yes or no. If we trust him, we'll get on the carpet. Like he asked Abraham to leave his homeland and go to the land of Canaan. He got on the carpet. Like Jesus asked Peter to get out of the boats and walk on water. He got on the carpet. Like when God asked us to start rooftop over 20 years ago, despite the costs, despite the risks, despite the fears, we got on the carpet. There is no following Jesus without getting on the carpet. When God asks us to confess our sins to one another, even though that's embarrassing and humiliating, like Brittany just did. I mean, it wasn't embarrassing and humiliating. It's actually quite admirable and courageous. might feel embarrassing, though. It's hard to do that unless we trust that God knows what's good for our souls and for our relationships. When God tells us, for example, to not just get divorced, but to work on our marriage and make it work, we've got to trust that God actually knows what he's talking about when it comes to marriage or anything There is no other way to follow Jesus than to trust in him. As much as the book of Isaiah tells us to trust God, though, it also tells us not to fear, to not be afraid. Fear gets in the way of trust, so now let's talk about fear. Do not fear, he says, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. He says later, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I've summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. These commands to not be afraid were important for the people of Judah to hear. You see, after they were released from exile in Babylon, they had a long journey back to Jerusalem. They faced a barren wilderness. They faced a ruined city. They faced enemies who wanted to retake them. God knew that fear stood in their way. Fear would keep them stuck in the past. They needed to trust and not be afraid. Now, 
I'm actually very interested in the subject of fear. I'm interested and fascinated in it for a personal reason. Why? Well, if you will allow me a few minutes of an extended detour, I'll tell you. I'm interested in fear because it's my thing. It's my burden. I'm an anxious guy. I live my life trapped by fear. I fear many things. I fear rejection. I fear disapproval. I fear the dark. I fear empty houses. I don't like scary movies. I don't watch scary... Why would anybody watch scary movies? I really don't understand why anybody would watch scary... They're scary. (laughs) Why would we do this? I fear snakes. I fear spiders. You might not believe this. You might not believe this. I fear public speaking. It looks like I don't, but that's only because I have mastered the art of pretending that I'm not totally freaking out right now. I actually did my dissertation on fear, uh, specifically on pulpit anxiety for preachers. I wanted to learn more about how preachers like me experience and cope with public speaking fears. For my research, I needed to find interview subject, so I ran an ad in a couple of professional Christian publications. The ad said this, does preaching make you want to throw up? If so, email Matt at rooftop.org to participate in a research study. I interviewed eight different preachers from around the country. Some of them actually have it worse than me. Some of them had to have been, had to be hospitalized after preaching. But it's not just preachers. I mean, communication experts say that fear of public speaking is the most common fear and phobia out there, more common even than the fear of death. Jerry Seinfeld has joked that most of us would rather be in the casket at our funeral than speaking at our funeral. Now, I know fear is bad, and it can really inhibit living life fully for God, let alone preaching. I've experienced that firsthand. But let me take a different angle on fear here for just a few minutes. I actually think fear gets a bad rap. Fear can be a good and healthy psychological response to the dangerous world that we live in. I mean, there's a lot of scary stuff out there. There are lions and pandemics and dictators. That should all frighten us. The reason it frightens us is because we're working the way God designed us to work. God designed our bodies and minds to operate in a way that when we are faced with a perceived threat, we are ready to respond for our own self-preservation. Probably you've heard, for example, the fight, flight, or freeze response. Raise your hand if you've heard of the fight, flight, or freeze response. It's an actual physiological response that happens in our brains and in our bodies when we encounter perceived threats. Certain things happen inside of us. When we see a lion, for example, uh, blood flows away from our limbs and to our central organs so that more essential systems can respond. That's why, for example, when you get nervous, you have to go to the bathroom Because the GI system isn't really at the top priority list when you're face-to-face with a lion. Our muscles start twitching when we face fears so that we can be prepared to move more quickly if we need to. This is why when we get scared, we start trembling. Because we might have to escape. Uh, We lose our peripheral vision so that we can focus in on the threat in front of us. 
This fear response is honestly what has kept the human race alive for a very long time. We fight, we flee, or we freeze. Uh, You probably know what it's like to experience the fight, flight, or freeze response. Me, I'm not much of a fighter. I'm more of a flighter (laughs) or a freezer. Any other flighters or freezers out there, you become a possum. When I get scared, I can feel myself like resisting the urge to just run or drive away. I just want to get away. Or I just kind of want to disappear into the background so nobody sees me. When I'm up here preaching and it's not like going well, I can feel myself resisting the urge to just run from the stage or just kind of blend into the drums. I'm not here. Just kind of get off the stage like this. This is the freeze and flight combo response. I'm a flighter, I'm a freezer. I do know fighters, though. You might be one of them. Raise your hand if your preferred response to fear stimulus is to fight, fight back. I know plenty of angry, combative people. Here's what's interesting. I find angry people to be some of the biggest scaredy cats out there. Anger is oftentimes a sign of fear. You just feel threatened. The lion's not going to get me. I'm going to grab it by its mane and wrestle it down. If you're a fighter when you get stressed out, the question you need to ask yourself in that moment is, what am I afraid of right now? So the problem here isn't really fear. No, fear is a normal response to life. The problem is that we're afraid of things we don't need to be afraid of. Our brains don't always serve us well here. We're not in danger as much as we used to be or as much as we think we are. We live in a relatively safe modern society, but our brains haven't caught up with the progress. That's why, for example, when you're up in a tall building, you feel afraid of heights, even though there is no logical reason to think that you will fall. I mean, you're not going to jump from the building. You're standing behind two inches of glass where there's a large you know, fence in front of you, you had no intention of scaling, and yet you're terrified that you're going to fall from the top. Why? You're afraid because your brain has been conditioned over a very long time to be afraid of heights by people who actually fell. That's one of the reasons why I get so terrified of public speaking. I mean, public speaking makes me sometimes more than just nervous. It makes me terrified. I I start sweating and shaking, and I want to run like my life depends on it. Why? I'm not in any physical danger. Nothing dangerous has ever happened to me while public speaking. Yet. (laughs) Unless today is the day. Why do we get that scared that I want to run from the stage? Because part of my brain mistakenly thinks that my life does depend on it. The emotional part of my brain thinks I'm going to die, even though, logically, I know I won't. Scientists would say that we have an overactive fear response. We get afraid of things that shouldn't scare us. Maybe they used to a long time ago, but they shouldn't anymore. Our brains haven't caught up with our social progress. The problem with an overactive fear response is that it can lead to chronic stress. Chronic stress is when your brain gets stuck being afraid of stuff, like, all the time. A lot of you might know what it's like to live in a constant state of chronic stress. Chronic anxiety causes a host of physical problems, including ulcers, heart disease, decreased immunity. But the other problem with an overactive fear response is that it inhibits our behavior in normal circumstances. When you're afraid of stuff you don't need to be afraid of, you're not using the more advanced part of your brain. That's why when you get nervous, you say stupid things. Does that happen to anybody else? When you get nervous, you just say the most ridiculous things. 
or you make the most insane decisions. Why did you, why did I, gosh, why? Because you're not using the logical part of your brain that God gave you to use during those moments. We're not at our best when we're operating out of fear. Now, why am I going on about all this stuff? Is it just because nobody read my dissertation? Maybe at least a little. And maybe you think, for the record, this is all just psychobabble stuff and you just wish we would just kind of get back to the Bible, Matt. That's why I came. Get back to the Bible. Just back to the Bible. But it's not psychobabble, if I may. It's how God created us. And how sin works in our minds. And I think this is relevant because by understanding how fear works inside of us, we can actually learn how to trust God more. You see, just as God gave our brains a stress response for dangerous situations, he also gave gave us a relaxation response. And the relaxation response is an actual system in the brain that serves as the off switch to stress and fear. Chemicals are released, which calm the body. In fact, brain scientists have identified how the relaxation response works in the brain and how we can assist it. And what I find fascinating is that much of this wisdom on how to cope with fear and live lives of trust is incredibly consistent with the wisdom we read in Scripture. So with a few minutes I have left, I want to talk practically. How do we fear less and trust more? How do we fear the world less, lions that we don't need to be afraid of, and trust God more, the only lion we should? That's good right there. I didn't even write that down. That just came out. Wow. Sorry, and then I just ruined it. (laughs) See, you know, when you get nervous, say stupid things. Happens all the time. Let me mention six ways that both scripture and science say the relaxation response in our brains can be switched on. I won't spend a lot of time on each of these, but I do want to mention those. For those of you who get stuck being afraid of stuff that you don't need to be afraid of. First, meditate. Meditative breathing involves pausing at defined or spontaneous moments during the day to clear the mind of mental clutter. By clearing the mind, you're allowing the brain to get set back to normal. Deep breathing refreshes your oxygen supply. It focuses you on the moment, allowing you to focus there instead of being distracted by the guilt and the shame of what just happened or the anxiety of what might happen. And for the record, there's nothing unchristian about meditation. You can, be, uh, you can meditate and not just become an automatic Buddhist. That's not how that works. Oh, I meditated. I'm a Buddhist now. Jesus, in fact, practically invites us to meditate in the Sermon on the Mount. When he tells us, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about the body, what you will wear. Consider the birds of the air. Take a moment. Consider the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much valuable, more valuable than birds? The world all around us is full of reminders that God cares for us and will take care of us, including the birds of the air. How can we consider these reminders, though, if we don't take time to sit, breathe, Think, relax, and watch them flitting about in the sky, in the trees, 
communicating to us from our Heavenly Father what he wants us to understand, that he cares for us more than the birds. Think about these things. Consider these things. Meditate upon them. Meditate. Second, pray. There's some overlap here, but on the other hand, not all meditation is prayer and not all prayer is meditation. In terms of helping us learn trust and fear less, prayer is undeniably therapeutic. Prayer actually lowers blood pressure. It stimulates helpful cognitive patterns of gratitude and peace. When you pray, you put good things in your brain and you cycle out the bad things. More importantly, prayer opens the channel by which we can hear from God's spirit who wants us to be at peace with him. When we pray, we kind of dial into him on the radio so we can hear his voice and get rid of the static. As Peter writes, do not be anxious about anything. Here's how. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Pray. Thirdly, sing. The therapeutic benefits of music have long been established by scientists. In fact, some anthropologists thinks that, think that the human beings uh, started singing before we started talking. I mean, this is how babies, that shouldn't surprise us, this is how babies operate. They don't start talking, they start singing. What am I doing? I'm being a baby singing. In case you're wondering, what's he doing? Baby singing. A research project by the National Center for Biotechnology Information concluded that music impacted the psychobiological stress systems of people in a beneficial way. Basically, music is very, very good for us. But we don't need scientists to tell us this. I learned about it from Maria and the sound of music. When the boys were scared, remember this scene, the sound of music, the boys were scared because of the thunderstorm, and they come running into the bedroom to frow Maria's bedroom, like, we're scared, what do we do? And what does Maria have them do? They sing together. She leads them in a song. Remember the song? About their favorite things, raindrops and roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Know the song? When the dog bites, come on, come on, everybody. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad or mad, I simply remember my favorite things and then I don't feel so bad. Do that. There's even a dance you can do with it if you do it at the right time. Just do that. We know, I'm not sure why you're clapping, but thank you. <laughs> we know that singing helps us fear less. Uh, the book of Psalms is filled with songs to sing when God's people get afraid. Like in Psalm 56, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And God, whose word I praise, and God I trust and I'm not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? That's actually a song. That's a song that God's people sang when they would get scared. Honestly, music is my favorite coping device. It's why I've always got my headphones on, listen to music like all the time. Why all the time? Because I'm almost always afraid of something. <laughs> There's something around me that I need to be afraid of. I'm not much of a meditator. I've tried meditation several times. I just don't have the patience for it. it hurts my butt. But, but I, could spend, I could spend hours just by myself playing my guitar, alone in the room, listening to music, meditating on the melodies, of God's love and presence. Sing. 
How do we deal with fear, meditation, prayer, song? I will also add a couple coping strategies that you won't necessarily find in scripture, but not because they're not healthy or true. Uh, medication and exercise are two very appropriate ways to deal with your fear. Uh, some of us have actual chemical imbalances in our brains that result in chronic fear. Medication can help there. Christians need not be afraid of medication or science. And sometimes the best way to cope with fear and anxiety is to exercise it out of you. Like I said, when you get afraid, your body wants to react. Your body is primed to do something, so go do something. Go on a run, go on a walk, go to the gym. Meditate, pray, sing, take your meds, exercise. But the most important way to trust and not fear is a bit counterintuitive, and I'll leave you with this. The most important way to trust and not fear is to fear God instead. Fear God instead. The fear of God is a very important idea in the Bible. The idea here is that there is nothing in the world truly worth fearing more than God himself. The prophet puts it this way in chapter 8. Do not fear what this people fears. Do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Yikes. Apparently, what ordinary people fear, we shouldn't. We should fear God alone. Even Jesus picks up on this theme when he says in the Gospels, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. I wonder if he said it like that. I wouldn't be surprised if he did. Either way, yikes. What? Question. Why would a loving father want us to fear him? And how is fearing that God might destroy us in hell going to help us if we're supposed to trust in him? How can we trust in someone who threatens to destroy us in hell? Good question. I actually think it's plain that Jesus thinks we should fear God. God has the power to create. God has the power to destroy. We get our fears backwards. We fear little things but forget to fear the God who will judge our lives, which is a very real threat for us as sinners, that God will judge our lives. I mean, you can make an argument that he should. You can make an argument that God should destroy us in hell. Look at what we have done to the world in which we live. You can make a very easy argument that the most appropriate way that God should treat us is to destroy our souls in hell. Honestly, in fact, when I began to understand this, Somewhat counterintuitively, it helped me with my fear of people and my fear of preaching. I mean, I still get nervous, but I've come to know God, my creator, my judge. I know the awesome responsibility he has put in me as a preacher to speak his word. If I don't, I will be judged. And the more I think about that, the less afraid I am to tell you things that you might not want to hear. You might not like what I say. You might disagree. You might never come back here again. But I can't be afraid of that. You know what I'm really afraid of? Is appearing before God, my maker, and having to explain why, you know, God, I just didn't 
say to the people what you gave me to say. That's an awkward conversation that I do not want to have with my master. That's the best way to handle your fear. Whatever your fears are. I'm sure spiders are scary. I'm sure cancer is scary. I'm sure loneliness is scary. I'm sure unemployment is scary. Those are very real threats, but not compared to the God who will judge your life. Fear of God puts other things in perspective. Having said that, just God doesn't want us to live in perpetual fear of him. Just because Jesus says God can destroy our souls in hell doesn't mean he will. And from another perspective, what the Bible means when it tells us to fear God isn't that we should be afraid of him all the time. It means really that we should respect him. Respect his power. God has the power of life and death. God supervises the heavens. God schedules the tides. In fact, it is this fear-inducing power of God that allows us to trust in him. If God didn't have the power to create and the power to destroy, would he even be worth trusting? If God didn't have the power to do anything he said he could do, could we even trust in him? I couldn't. I trust in God because I know he is the only one worthy of my trust, the only one powerful enough to deserve it. Politicians can't save me. Medicines can't save me. Psychologists can't save me. They can try, but only God can save me in the way that really matters. Only God can save me from sin and from death. It's kind of like my relationship with my daughter, Miranda. Don't tell her this, but I kind of want my daughter to be afraid of me. At least in a sense, I want her to be afraid of disappointing me. I want her to be afraid that I might punish her. I want her to respect my power, my authority. It's only by understanding my power and authority that she can trust that I'm going to take care of her because I love her to death. I want her to fear my power so that she knows that I will do in love whatever it takes to rescue her if she gets into trouble. The same power I have to punish is the power that I am committed to using to provide and to protect. So it is with God, our Heavenly Father. He is the maker of the stars and the oceans. He is the source of life and the avenger of death. He is also a God of kindness and compassion who loves us more than we can imagine. He loved us enough to come to earth as a man and die on a cross for our sins. With a God so powerful, a God so loving, so kind, what have we to fear? Spiders? Scary movies? It is our fear of God which allows us to trust in him. As the psalmist writes here, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. Maybe you don't yet trust God. Maybe you're here as a seeker. Maybe you have heard about God, the Father of Jesus Christ, and you're here to investigate. Well, keep investigating, keep learning, or you could put your trust in him this morning. You can tell him that you want to give your life to him, you want to trust in his plan for your life, wherever it leads, you want to trust that he can get you through anything, through sin, through death, through guilt. We'd be happy, we'd love to help you take that step of faith on the way back. Let us know in your info card. Come talk afterwards. Maybe you've been thinking about God for a very long time. Maybe today is the day when he reaches to you across the balcony asking you, do you trust me? And maybe today is the day that you say, yes.
Let's pray. Father, on behalf of my brothers and sisters here at Rooftop, we confess our fears. There's a lot of things to be afraid of in the world. Some more worthy of fear than others. And our fear has kept us from living the lives you have called us to live. Our fear of rejection, our fear of failure, our fear of loneliness, our fear of disappointing other people, our fear of want. You tell us to live generous lives and we're just afraid of not having enough. We don't trust you. You tell us to love our enemies and we're fear of we're afraid of looking silly. We'd rather just hate them. You want to take us in new exciting directions in our jobs, in our social lives, but we're afraid of leaving the comfortable so we don't trust you and we miss out. We suffer, the world suffers. But we have as our example, your son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth and lived a perfect life of trust. You assured him that his life, not, life would not end in persecution. His life would not end at the grave and he trusted you and rose from the dead, putting all the scoffers to shame. We claim that trust is our own, even when we can't trust what you've given us to do. We know that Jesus did, and we are received into your presence in heaven, not because we are able to trust, but because Jesus was. But we hope that slowly, patiently, the spirit of Jesus Christ can give us a spirit of trust so that we can go where you want it to take us and not give in to fear, the fear that the devil implants in our brains, keeping us from what you want. Thank you for meeting us here this morning. Thank you for all the baptisms that we've been able to witness this morning. What we've seen you do Give us peace and trust and hope this week. Pray this thing in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit.